Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening um, and a very warm welcome to LSE this evening. My name is Patrick Wallis. I'm one of the professors in the Department of Economic History here at LSE and the current head of department. It's my pleasure to introduce this public lecture by Professor Mary Morgan on the subject of how economics changes the world. So before we get to business, before I introduce Mary and what she's going to talk about, just a couple of practicalities. This is a hybrid event, uh, so it will be, it is being live streamed and it will also be recorded and made available online. So be aware of that, particularly if you're asking a question later, that you will be recorded. We do have a Twitter hashtag, it's LSE ECHIST, if you'd like to tweet or X or whatever it's called now on the lecture. Um, if you're going to do that, can you do it really quietly with your phones on silent, please? It would be really helpful. Um, and obviously, if there's a fire alarm, we leave that way. Um, so after the lecture's finished, there is going to be some time for questions. Uh, those of you who are joining us online, uh, please uh, type in your questions. There's a function for this in the, uh, the webinar. Um, do give us your name, aff affiliation, and institution. I'll be selecting a mix of questions from the floor and from those that are fed to me online. So this evening, this is a special moment for the department and for LSE. It's our chance to, to listen to and to celebrate uh, Professor Morgan in her term as president of the Royal Economic Society, which is the UK's premier economic association, Association of Economists. Um, Mary's not the first president of the RES to come from LSE. Uh, far from it, in fact, there have been just almost too many if you look at the list of names. It's been dominated by LSE. Nor is she the first economic historian. Um, indeed, the late Nick Crafts was her predecessor but one and he was also formerly of this department. But she's the first president to be based in our department while she serves in that office. So this is a particular moment of pride for us as a department of economic history. You know, we're specialized, we're different, we're a very distinct group in the world as a place where we come together to research and teach economic history. And so to have that recognized and celebrated by the Royal Economic Society is a wonderful thing. So I expect but Mary's lecture will show you why she's so widely recognized as an innovative thinker in her field. Um, it's characteristically quite bold in its title alone, right? That's a big question to take on for anyone. Um, but I just want to take a moment to give you a sense of where it comes from. So Mary is, I think, LSE through and through. She was an undergraduate here. I'm not going to give you the dates. Uh, she studied economics and economic history, uh, which is still one of our main undergraduate programs. We're almost unique as a place where you can study economic history from undergraduate through to PhD. She wrote her doctorate here, uh, supervised by Dudley Baines, himself one of the legends of the department. And she's worked here since 1979, which is a fairly good innings, I think. Don't look so scared. Um, <laughs> Well, it's from your CV, so I really hope so. Um, in that time, she's built an extraordinary body of work um, from foundational studies in the history of economics uh, to studies of how economists measure, um, to studies of how they use models, 
to thinking about how economists even use narratives as ways to both communicate, but also to shape how we think about uh, economics itself. She's got a sequence of books which is just too long to list, so I'm not going to try, but they share one feature, and that is that they move our ideas forwards, not just in economics, not just in history, but in philosophy, in science as well. And so this has led to her lecturing to audiences as dis distant from economics as to the physical sciences lab in New Mexico, which is where they test the missiles, I understand it, which must be an odd place to end up for an economist from London, um, and to molecular biologists in Heidelberg, um, I guess where they had uncertainty, and so Mary was there. Um, forgive the pun. Um, the, the point is really that with Mary, you can expect to be stretched, and it's worth it. So let me hand over to Mary now. Please welcome Mary Morgan to stage. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you for that uh, nice introduction. Um, and uh, I hope <laughs> you won't feel that stretching is too uncomfortable. <laughs> um, uh, and it's odd to me that there's no question mark on this question. Um, so um, I'm hoping that the slides will work and I will put the question mark on. Uh, this version of the title is a bit more of a tongue twister, which I haven't quite got that far, but what I want to do is explore how um, economic ideas do filter through and change the way the world works. Um, it's just, it seems like an obvious question to be thinking about in some ways, but in other ways it's not quite so obvious. Um, so let's be, I'm going to explain why in a minute. Um, so the outline for the talk is I'm going to talk to start with about this whole project of how we think about how the world changes, um, which is uh, this term performativity, which is a really awkward uh, term, and I prefer the term world making. How do we remake the world with economic ideas? That's basically what I'm interested in. Um, and that's going to have a, an introduction with little bits of philosophy and sociology, accounting, history statistics. So please stay with me through this bit, uh, because then I'm going to get to talk about two particular projects I've worked on. Um, apologies if some of you may have heard some of the casework before. I've been trying to put it together over the last years. <clears throat> um, if time, which probably there won't be, uh, I can talk about the sustainable development goals, and then I want to come back to this sort of recipe of how economic ideas um, help us uh, not just think about the world, but actually feed through into changing the world. So here's the puzzle I have and the framing for my answer. So the standard view is economic ideas create economic policies. So if economists have ideas, somehow they are fairly closely at attached to certain policies that go with them. And the real whole is how putting that into action those policies actually create changes in the economic world. And I'm not just talking about increasing taxes or decreasing taxes as happened uh, yesterday um, in Parliament. I'm talking about how is it that you create economies like the Russian economy or the Cuban economy under socialism? How do you create a war economy? How do you change the war economy into a peace economy? How do you develop an economy? So where you really try and change the way your economy actually works. So it's that gap or those set of gaps between the ideas and how changes on the ground happens 
that I'm really interested in. And that's a big puzzle, and that's what I've been working on for some time, uh, on and off, and, and teaching about that problem. And the answer I'm framing is that economic ideas are made to work through economists developing of diagrams, maps, models, measuring systems that in prompt cognitive changes um, about how uh, the world is um, and um, because they change the way that we think about the world and they produce the information that goes with that change way of thinking about the world it enables both the state and people in the economy to act on those changed notions. So as you can see, it's quite a sort of fuzzy set of things which I'm trying to fill in, and I'm gonna fill in them in uh, mostly um, with the cases, but here's the sort of basic diagram I think in terms of, which is if you want to remake the economic world, you've got a whole set of visions of the world. It's not just ideas about how it could be in a kind of utopian space, but economic ideas instantiated into diagrams, models, accounting systems, which is especially spelt wrongly with a capital C, because I want to talk about accounting and counting, um, and how that creates a set of measurements, which are new measurements. That's related to some, that's the one, those are the sets of things that causes a kind of cognitive shift. Um, and on the other hand, other side, action, which involves bureaucracy, state capacity, policy making, and all of us, individuals and group action. So you can see there's two sides to this puzzle and um, there's arrows going around the edge, but there's also lots of arrows going across the middle, uh, which, you, which we're gonna sort of give a bit of filling in. <clears throat> so <clears throat> the way people have thought about this uh, in historical terms, history of economics, is that history of economics uh, thinks of there being two kinds of economics, the science of economics, which analyzes how the economy is, and the art of political economy, that is how you change the world. And those are thought of as kind of policy recipes, or in my terminology, machines, which we'll see why later on. And you have successive schools of thought through the last hundreds of years, uh, which, which, wh whose economic science analysis leads you to think there are certain kinds of rules that you should do. So if you're uh, a mercantilist, you believe you should uh, have you, you get money through wealth and trade, and trade is the most important thing that gives you wealth, and that's why you create trading companies that create monopolies around the world and to gather uh, through the wealth of the world through trade. There's a whole set of those. Each school of economics has a kind of article economy side to it. Economists think of economic science as a kind of camera, not a machine. What economists do is describe the economy Policy making is a response to the diagnosis of conditions or an ambition to change something. So it's a kind of other side of economics. And of course, as we know, economics today has both sides. We have a policy side and we have a science side. So not much has changed in that sense, but it is the case that somehow, okay, my, my screen went blank. <laughs> uh, somehow, um, both of those go on together. And then there's a group of philosophers, sociologists, accountants, historians who have been looking at the way economics works, looking at these accounts of economics and how numbers are used, and are looking at how the economy performs and how it changes the, perform the performances it has. 
and they've labelled this with this quite awkward word, performativity. How well does the economy perform, not in terms of kind of, is it getting more growth or less growth, but how does it actually work? So the performance of the economy is trying to get at how the economy works. Um, that's one set of things. The other one is to think about a literature on world making and its relation to, to formativity. And I'm very struck by particularly the work of Nelson Goodman, a philosopher, um, who argues that both sciences and the arts change our views of the world by new, making new representations of the world. Now, here, here's the obvious thing that I want to use to try and persuade you what this is about. So, you know, if you think of 19th century art, it goes through, or 18th century and 19th century art, it goes through kind of giving you representations of things that are quite recognisable, people, cows, fields, houses, whatever. And then you get to things like Impressionism and Cubism, right? And maybe the first people who looked at Cubism thought, well, this is pretty weird. This is not how the world is. You know, the world is not an Impressionist world full of dots of colour. But actually, after a certain time, we begin to see, we look at this stuff, we begin to see the world in these dots of colours or as sets of cubes and sets of geometrical shapes. So the way that the artist represents the world and these schools of art, if you like, makes us see the world differently. We see the world having understood these representations, not understood them as a kind of um, intellectual thing, but kind of learnt how to see the world in those forms. And he argues the same is true of science, that scientific representations and accounts of science make you see things in the world differently. So in the 19th century, uh, the evolutionary biology is not just Darwinism, but Lamarckianism and Spencerism. Each of them is a different version of how the world goes, how things in the world have changed and evolved. And people over that period began to take that sort of for granted, that there's an evolutionary process going on, whichever of these ones it is. So it's representing things in science and arts makes us, all of us, see things in a different way. And Latour, a sociologist, French sociologist, uh, didn't so much pick this up as had a kind of parallel path on sociology about the way these representations like this um, I used and link us, so we use the representations, we think of the representations, we see them in our heads, we have them in our heads, and they link us to the world we're actually living in, and there's a link there somehow to a, a transformed, constructed world. And there's a problem there, how does, that, how does that change the world? We can see how we change our view of the world, but how does it change the world, the way the world works? So. There's two things going on here which I want to grab. One is the importance of these representations. Our economic ideas, our concept sets are framed and specifically defined and constructed, not just as ideas, but inside diagrams, inside maps, inside models, and inside measurement systems. So those are the things I'm talking about as representations in economics. Um, they're the parallels to the cubism and the impressionism. Performativity, then, is trying to get at, through sociology, through how we use those representations to do things with. Okay, so that's where I'm really trying to hone in. And I can see some puzzle faces going on, so um, bear with me and I hope we'll get less puzzles. Um, <clears throat> Before we get to the less puzzles, uh, a little bit more sociology. Um, <clears throat> 
So this is very much um, a French tradition uh, with Michel Calon, who claimed that economics very broadly uh, defined beyond, beyond the economists, all of us in other words, um, we perform, shape and format the economy. It's not just that we observe how it functions, we make it. And of course we are all economic actors. We are all acting in the world. Uh, we buy things, we sell things, uh, we save, we don't save, and all those things. We are actors in the economy, so it's not quite so odd as one might seem. But it was taken several steps further by Donald Mackenzie, uh, who um, wrote um, a study of the changes in financial markets using economic models, and particularly the case um, of long-term capital management between um, 1994 and 1998, which took up some models of some financial economists, Black, Scholes, and Merton, and used those to change the trading rules, or to suggest changes in the trading, not the rules, the trading rules, not the, not the bureaucratic rules, but the rules that people were using to trade in, in the market and changed the way the market worked because they were using these economic uh, models which came directly from economics. So for, for Mackenzie, he thinks, he thinks that financial economics was an active force. Right? It was an engine that changed the way, not just the environment in fact, but the way that market uh, worked. So it's not a camera passively recording it, it's not uh, economists looking at the world and saying, oh, this is, how it, this is it, this is how it works. No, this is an engine which changes the way that economy works. And so performativity for him depends on the use of these economic theories and models. And the critical thing here is they create technologies of action or intervention. It's because those models created trading rules for the traders to trade with, right, that's the technology of action, that you get this change in the market, change in the way the market works. So he's interested in representations, creating interventions. And for me, what's important about all of this is that the representations are, it's because they're partly cameras. If the representations don't capture anything about our economy, it's unlikely they're going to be able to function as machines. So for me, there's a link here between the ability of our representations to have some accuracy, they're never going to be completely accurate, but some relevance to the way the economy works and the way the economy is, is that they can also function as machines. Um, there's a nice critique of all of this, uh, which I mentioned, because I think it again fixes things a bit, um, which is Emmanuel Didier's critique of that whole notion. You know, can theory influence the facts? Can it transform at the same time as describe? If you yell at a pebble, can you turn it into gold? Which is a kind of alchemy claim, right? Well, no, he's saying. I mean, that's why he's using that claim. Uh, statistics can express things in the economy and may have effects, but it's not that they directly uh, create gold in the economy. So yelling at the economy is not enough, but creating technologies of change could be the critical thing here. To, so, and he's interested in the statistics, so he's particularly concerned with, with the way statistics work. So this is kind of a bigger version of the initial thesis then, I filled it in I hope, um, that creating new categories, creating new actions go together, new measurement systems, which is Goodman's world making, often involve creating new categories. Right? It's not just measuring something you already have, it's making us rethink what the categories we need to measure are, just like the cubism and, and uh, impressionism are. 
Those then become politically and economically salient, which is the work of Alain de Rosier, another part of this French group. And that's the way in which you can radically change an economy. That is, how do you create the Cuban economy? How do you create the Russian economy? It needs these kinds of things of measuring systems and categories which you can then work with. Um, there's an important intervention by Ted Porter here, which says, okay, this is only going to work if we have statistics we trust, if we have representations we trust. So we can't just work on a whole lot of fake numbers. We need to have some faith in the statistical framework we're de developing the numbers that we're collecting. There's another final bit here, which I want to come to at the end, uh, which is why I think accounting is so important. So it's not just that we've got these new categories, we've got this new world picture, and we rely on, we think these numbers are good numbers, but it's about forming the habits and norms of behavior so that we align to these new pictures, and in the process, those pictures get filled in, and there's a kind of co-fitting adaptability which make an account that's performative. And this is something I'm calling sociology of accounting, which actually predates a lot of the performativity stuff, and has been developed here, in the LSE, in the accounting department by uh, Mike Power and Peter Miller, and now by Andrea Menningham. Which is why you know, it's really important to mention them in here. Okay, so here's our uh, map, which um, is the same map, except I've said, look, in the middle, there's a whole lot of stuff in between. This doesn't just happen. You have lots of people doing lots of things and lots of activities. So in the two cases I'm gonna talk about, uh, those outside bits are there, but I'm also going to learn a lot about this stuff in between that makes it happen. It just doesn't happen outside around the edge. It happens a lot in the middle. Um, so that stuff in between, uh, lots of different people, lots of institutional bodies, right? Lots of design technologies of intervention based on these statistics, models, recipes, rules of procedure, lots of that kind of stuff. But not only that technical stuff, lots of speeches, writings of persuasion, political rhetoric, uh, accounts, press accounts, written instructions, reports, reviews, all the stuff that goes on all the time, that's part of the process, the stuff in between. So there's a top-down ideas coming in, changing the world. There's a lot of bottom-up stuff stuff going on, otherwise this wouldn't work. So let me go and make all this a bit more concrete. <clears throat> that time. Here's a Booth poverty map from the 1890s. And if I can get this to work, uh, we are here, right? This is Lincoln's in fields. So we're, we're just here. Um, this is a very famous, a set of, part of one of set of maps of a large project undertaken um, by Booth in the 1890s. And here's the context. Uh, in the 1890s, there's a large class of urban poor. There's no social welfare because the social welfare system is based in, the, in parishes, in the countryside, and when urbanization happens, a lot of this social welfare system breaks down. So the 1880s is a period of riots and strikes. Uh, everyone knows there's poverty in the midst of plenty, but no one knows how many people are poor. What portion of the population are poor? It seems a problem by almost everyone, by the state, by a group of middle class philanthropists, by statistical experts, 
by social scientists, by reformers. So everybody knows there's a problem, but nobody knows the size of the problem, and nobody really understands the problem. But there are two competing analyses out there. One is which says, if you're poor, it's your fault, right? It's individual fault that is to blame. Uh, and the associated solutions are based on the charity space, charity foundations, which uh, try and teach people to behave better so that they won't be poor, right? If you're poor, it's because you're drunk and thriftless and you can do better, right? There's another set of analyses which says it's the economic system or the socio-economic system and that's because it's basically a gig economy. A large part of employment then is gig economy employment. Part-time, a few hours a day, a few hours a week, really problematic to, to get a full job. Even things like painting houses, which you could do all the way through the summer, you can't do in the winter because the paint doesn't dry. So you could be employed for half the year. Um, and this is an exemplary social science project. Um, it's uh, a huge team. It's financed by um, this gentleman here, Charles Booth, who's a big um, ship owner. I mean, he's, it's not a huge number of ships, but he's very financially uh, well off because he runs a trade between Liverpool and South America and parts of Europe. Uh, so he's made a lot of money and he stood for Parliament in Liverpool and didn't get in um, and uh, got interested in the problem of poverty in Liverpool and came to London and set up this project um, to, which he funded himself to investigate London poverty. Um, and <clears throat> this is one of the main outputs which I'm going to come back to but this is a really sort of uh, an important part of the way he thought about it. Um, the other person here is Beatrice Webb, who um, was on the charity side and moved over to work with, uh, with Booth and one of, the one of the founders of the LSE. Uh, so the question they're asking, or the question that Booth is asking, is how many people in, are in poverty in London? Okay, there's no wage rates. You can't just go and download a load of information about wage rates or incomes. They're just, it's just not there. It's not even in the library in the book for you to look at. It just doesn't exist. You have some wage rates for individual uh, jobs, probably. But you don't have this kind of overall coverage you need to figure out how many people are poor. So Booth has a set of observers. These are school visitors. School visitors go into every household not just every house, because lots of houses have more than one household, but every household every year to figure out how many children are in that household, because by then they all have to be in school, but how much they have to pay for school depends on how poor they are. So the school visitors are observing the poverty of the household. They're looking at the children, how well fed they are, how well clothed they are, how terrible the housing is, or how modest the housing is or how good the housing is, they're observing and they're looking and they're asking about the occupations because that's a critical piece of information. So they're not gathering numbers, right? They're gathering qualitative information. Um, in the East End, they look at every single household. Uh, in the North, West and South, they look at every street. They, they do a street survey. Um, this is in addition, you have policemen's reports from the beat. You have lots and lots of other information that they're bringing in. Um, and they use that to categorize a set of classes, uh, a set of eight classes using this observational kind of uh, 
staff to characterize the classes and then to characterize all households into the class. Right? So they define the category by taking all this stuff together and then they put each household in, into, a, into a particular class. Um, and the number of uh, having categorized all the households, they map it, which I'll come back to in a minute, um, to show the, the distribution of poverty, and they get an aggregate poverty, London, London rate of poverty of 30.7%, which strangely enough is exactly the same number that my colleague Professor Eric Schneider gave last week in this very room for the number of stunted children in the foundling, stunted girls or stunted children in the foundling hospital at the same kind of time. I've always thought this was spurious accuracy, 30.7%, but uh, okay, about a third of all London is in poor. Now, this is a really shocking finding, of course, everybody in London knew there were lots of poor, but now we have a number on it, but you can't get on the number, you can't act on the number directly, um, because what are you going to do? I mean, are you just going to give out money to everyone? <clears throat> okay, let me go back to the map, or onto the map, right? Um, it's color-coded. We know where the poor are uh, because if you're yellow, can you see the yellow bits vaguely? The bits that don't show up much are yellow. Um, University College, our main rival when we were founded, is in a nice yellow rich area. That's the richest class. And red is middle classes. And blues and black are the poor people. There's four classes of poverty. And where we are, oh, where we are, and as you can see, was dark blue and black. Black class is labelled criminal, not because they knew they were criminals, but because they figured there was no other way they could be alive unless they were actively involved in crime. Now, <clears throat> you can't do anything with that number. I mean, this map is incredibly powerful. And if you live in the area which was covered by Booth, uh, there's a wonderful site, the LSE has digitized all these maps, and if you live in the relatively central area, you can go online and put your postcode in and see exactly what your street looked like on this map, which is kind of fun if you happen to be in the right area. You can see whether or not you were yellow and upper class, or whether your forebears in your house were uh, sort of members of the criminal community. Uh, <coughs> so... Um, What do we need to do to do any, to have any action on this? Let me catch up with myself. What you need to do is to think about getting dis, dis, having aggregated this all up into this wonderful map and this single number. Um, is you need to take that apart again to reveal the kinds of people in poverty and the causes of their poverty. So Booth was able to abstract a smaller sample of the very poor, there's two classes of very poor, and show and, and think about the, the particular numbers and proportions of different kinds of people. Are the people in poverty, are they, are they large families? Um, have, are they widows, widowers? Uh, um, are they in good health or bad health? What is the, what's the structure of that poverty? And he managed to link a sample, he had, there's lots of other parts of the Booth Poverty Project which looked at particular occupations, so there's a, lots of occupational reports, and he managed to link the occupational reports to the occupations in his household to get a numerical analysis of poverty. So here's his table, 
This is the two lowest classes of poverty. Um, this is great poverty, which is A and B. There's two classes of poverty above that. And you can see he's made a list. I hope you can, can you read that at the back? Okay. So <clears throat> the loafers, wonderful word, are those people who, you know, the charities people are after. They're the people who don't even want to try and work. But look, they're only 4%, right? Now, the charity people are also after the ones who are drunken or thriftless, right? Which is number five and number six, drink problems and thriftless problems. That's called a questions of habit. And again, that's, and that's bigger than 4%. There's only 14%. Right? Only 18% of these two bottom classes of poverty are poor because of personal characteristics, in other words. If you look at the rest, questions of employment, that's the gig economy problem, casual work, irregular work, very low pay, very small profits if you're in business. 55% of this sample of 1,610 households um, is poor because of their work situation. And it's not because their work, their work is particularly different. That's the nature of work in the economy of the 1890s. Right? <clears throat> and the other bit, which is large, is the question of circumstances, large families, illness, or large family combined with irregular work. Okay? So most of the people who are poor in this class, in this set of uh, outcomes, are poor for good reasons. There is no health service. Right? Uh, there's not much you can do about some of the things uh, that you have there. <clears throat> so what the study shows is that poverty is multidimensional in aspect that you observe, it's multidimensional in causes, it's systemic in the labour market, it's systemic in circumstantial personal details, and these feed off each other so poverty causes poverty. Okay, now, what's impressive, I think, about this story, and I'm going too slowly, um, is this immediately, or not, not immediately, but very soon creates actions. The poverty maps and the numbers redefine the understanding of poverty. So the poverty map is our representation and the statistics that go with it. And that's redefining people's understanding at the time that the big problem is not personal, it's the circumstances of the economy and individual circumstances. And the poverty lobby and the social science community essentially are kind of ed urging the government on to create actions at this disaggregated level. So we have state provisions of old age pensions in 1908. We have the beginning of local exchanges for unemployment under a national act in 1909, copying Germany, who's done this much earlier. Trade boards to set wages for certain sweatshop trades. That's the match girls, if anybody's ever heard of them. So ones which had very, very low pay uh, in sweatshop circumstances. The beginning of state insurance for sickness and unemployed people. Limited occupational carriage, coverage. In other words, you're creating part of the welfare state before World War I, although we tend to think of the, world war, of the welfare state, which is in full-on, coming out in, in the 1940s. Right? So most people kind of don't notice all this stuff that's gone on, and it's come on because of the work of uh, the Booth Poverty Map and the social science surrounding it. Um, this slum clearance is a new model building uh, on health grounds. This very, very poor areas, the quality of the housing is so poor that the basic thing you did with slums in those days is to pull, it, pull them down, 
uh, here we are blown up, I hope you can see on the top, uh, Lincoln's in Fields, LSE, where we are now is in that dark blue black area, right? That's all torn down, you have the old witch built, uh, Kingsway up through the middle, it's a direct result of this kind of whole math, math, mapping project. Um, and if, like me, you walk around the LSE and I keep wondering why you get right-angle corners and alleys that go nowhere, I think it's because, actually, if you look, here's the old witch, here's the architect's drawings of how this was going to be done. You can see the very old street pattern where those slums were pulled down. We're in one of the new bits, but some of the older buildings, the 1920s building, you can still see these funny alleyways uh, just off the buildings and even inside the buildings. <coughs> This led to a research sequence, uh, Roundtree, famous chocolate manufacturer, uh, does a survey in York, finds the same results, and he creates the first poverty line. Right? So he's moving the agenda onwards, away from what, is the, what are the causes of poverty, to thinking about what you can do about it by thinking about the poverty line, both in calories and income terms. And after the, his, does his work surveying York, which he does incredibly quickly, I think six months to do the whole of York. He puts his wages up, he's got a big chocolate factory, he puts his wages up and he creates an eight-hour day. He's a good Quaker employer, and of course that sets the standard uh, for other um, employers in York. Arthur Bowley, uh, professor of statistics here, has a team, and he invents random sampling, so he only has to send sample every tenth, tenth household house, not every household. He surveys four other towns. He gets very similar findings, but that's the invention of random sampling. So a significant research sequence is thrown up by this Booth Poverty Project, which creates more and more knowledge and more and more representations on which action can happen. <clears throat> um, okay, let me go past that one. And here's the action sequence. Here's William Beveridge in 1910, age 31. Uh, William Beveridge uh, becomes the director of the LSE, um, but he is also um, a pretty good economist. He does the first, um, for those of you who are economists, he does the first time series analysis of wheat prices in the medieval period. Um, he's an economist, he's a quantifier, he's a numbers man. He's also incredibly active in um, press circles, he writes for the newspaper, He's active in academic circles, he's active in political circles, he's active in bureaucratic circles. And he teams up with Winston Churchill to create the first uh, old age pensions and this set of, set of uh, legislation I've pointed to. This is Churchill's first ministerial position and he's anxious to make an impression. But they, interesting, both look kind of middle-aged even though they're 30. It's something about the way Edwardian people work. <coughs> Okay, so that's um, our remade world, right? <clears throat> we've got the representations, we've got the maps, we've got a lot of stuff about the numbers in there, and we keep getting more numbers because of that research sequence that gathers more and more numbers and more and more ways of analyzing them. But we've also got on the action side a lot of bureaucratic state policy-making stuff going on. And that is fed by a lot of individual and group actions. But notice at the bottom I've got cognitive shifts. It's because people see the poverty in this way, 
that you can think they can think of changing the world. Right? It has to be a change of understanding of what is happening in the world, which gives them that impetus to let all these things happen and to push all these things to happen on the right-hand side. Um, <clears throat> okay. And um, also to point out the importance of categories in this. Categories are a very important part of thinking in this terminology. Let me just go past um, to the next case, because I think we filled in that one pretty well. Um, and now I want to talk about accounting and accounts. Um, okay, lots of people will say, okay, no, this is not me. Don't say with me. <laughs> uh, because I think accounting is a really important part of the way social science needs to work or does work. And the good thing about accounting is it has two really different meanings. Account means to count, right? So Adam Smith, he must be able to read, write an account. But it also means to give a satisfactory reason. It's connected with reasoning. Samuel Johnson, the same one year before, I am so much disordered by indigestion of which I can give no account, it is difficult to write more, right? I can't give you a reason, I've got indigestion, I can't give you a reason, giving an account of something. And accounting is a very important part and undernoted, I think, in the way economics, economic world changes. Accounting gives you a form of measurement and constrained numerical reasoning about economic life. And it is very got some very good qualities about it. It has to somehow add up, and you can reason with it, right? You reason between the different sides of the balance sheet. Uh, if you're in a firm, you're trying to decide how to change things. Your accounting gives you the possibility of reasoning whether you should do more investment here or cut that bit down there. So it's a reasoning tool as well as accounting tool. And accountability is also relevant here because it's the way people hold other people to account, right? So how do people hold the government in that period before the First World War to account? How do the people get behind this move to actually introduce the right kind of legislation? Um, and I'm going to talk about, um, very briefly, about this guy, Che Guevara, who we all know was a revolutionary. But probably, you probably don't know is what he was the first minister for economy in after the Cuban Revolution in Cuba, and where he was, he said, as minister of economy, trying to sort out and create a socialist economy until he went off to Venezuela um, and got shot. Now he he all the American corporations fled Cuba after the revolution, but they left behind a lot of information about how counting systems work, particularly there are those that time most advanced managerial accounting systems. And Che Guevara said, okay, I'm not going to use Soviet planning because I don't think it works. I'm going to use the most advanced managerial accounting I can find left behind of these sort of sheets of information and the juniors who knew how it worked to create the socialist revolution. So he relied on cost accounting at the plant level to create socialism. And he um, held his production units and his uh, ministers to account by having a set of numbers that went up and down, sort of in and out from the center where he was to each of the plants, based on cost accounting. So it was about minimize your cost, and if you make profits, we'll let you invest. Right? So that was the kind of rule that he was using. Plus, in the center, of course, the accounting could add up. This is a really insightful account by Helen Yaffe, a PhD student in our department. I wish I had supervised her, but in fact I hadn't. It was someone else. 
Um, but it's a really clever account which takes apart all the way the accounting system works and fills in all that stuff in between to show you how the Cuban Revolution was going to and did, in fact, use this method of accounting to create a socialist revolution. It's the capitalist system creating the socialist revolution. As I said, it's, you know, it was working pretty well until he left uh, and they reverted to Soviet planning systems. Here's another one, uh, performative national income accounting. Here's Wolfgang Stolper, who's using national income accounting to design and plan the post-independence Nigerian economy. Um, he relied on national income accounting to figure out the total resources available, to aggregate the regional preferences, to think about the possibilities for action. So he's using it as a tool for planning with numbers, but also for reasoning with all the people he came into contact with, all the regional uh, groups and on the politician side um, and on the statistics side. Um, it's a very utopian moment, uh, 1960s, everyone is planning, you could be planning a capitalist economy as well as a socialist economy, it's the word you use to discuss uh, any attempts to change the economy and move it on. And all the young economists of the day were involved in planning missions, including many of the, the young professors and young people coming in as their first job before they came to LSE, would be to go on a mission somewhere to help um, uh, collect the data. So Alan Prest, who's a professor here in the economics department, his first job was working for Stolper, trying to collect national income accounts. He signs on as a civil servant to be head of the economic planning unit for two years, which is very unusual. Usually these missionaries go in, spend a few days, and come back out. So he's an unusual character, which is why I want to spend a little bit time, more time talking about him. One of the reasons we know so much about him is because he wrote a diary, uh, which every two or three days, he'd write the diary up, he sent it home to his wife, who was uh, somewhere in the US, I can't remember where, and she typed it up. So in his papers in the Duke University archive, we have this diary, which says exactly what was happening every day uh, in this attempt to plan the Nigerian economy. So what we have is, apart from here's a map, just to situate yourself, you know, economy. Um, this stuff comes from his diary. So what we find him doing between 1960 and 1962 is going everywhere he can go, looking at everything he can find, the glass factory, the fishing fleet, everything, asking everyone what they're doing and how they're doing it and whether it works, gathering experiences, gathering information, writing endless briefs, writing the plan and rewriting the plan and rewriting the plan. His ambition is for Nigeria to have a modern, diversified and virtually self-sustaining economic system. So it's not a particular kind of economy, it's, it's open, it's open because he needs to ask all the, air, all the people in all the areas what they want to do. He doesn't decide, it's not central planning, he asks the people in the different regions what projects they want to do and he feeds them into his plan, puts them into his plan and sees whether they can be afforded. He writes a wonderful book after all this experience called Planning Without Facts because that is indeed his problem. They don't know the population, they don't know huge amounts of stuff, right? So what a lot of these young economists doing there 
when they first do their first job is just sort of gathering facts. I mean, in the Nigerian case, one of these people is sitting on the banks of the Niger counting canoes going past, as if that's going to give you trade statistics, right? It's very, very problematic the number of amount of data they have. <clears throat> so much of development proceeds on the assumption you know the future and you know the starting point. That's not true. You don't know the starting point. So you're actually afloat in a sea of uncertainty. So what he's doing is he's asking the democratic representatives for their projects. He's consulting the middle ranks. He's consulting the grassroots. He's examining the costs and benefits. He's ranking all the projects. And most importantly, he is using national income accounting to see whether they're all consistent. You can have these plans. You can have projects. Can you do them all? How are you going to afford to do them all? Will they fit together? That's a big problem. And will they fit together over time? There's no point in having a plan for this year. You need a plan for five years. So um, you have various things to be aware of. The new rulers who want to have an air force and other things which are very expensive and don't do anything for you. So he's in the middle of this daily grind, as I call it, of planning circles. He's got the Cold War missionaries, the people who were just there for two or three days. You've got the Rockefeller and Ford Foundation, which are supplying some of the funds for some of those people going and looking and seeing what's happening. You've got British aid, you've got German aid, you've got US aid. You've got the international organizations, the IMF, the IBRD, the World Bank. You've got the Atomic Energy Commission, not quite clear what they're doing, but they're probably looking for uranium or something in the northern sands. Um, so you've got lots of people, they're there all the time. You know, if you look at his day, he gets up, he goes to the office, does three hours in the office, and he meets one of these people. And he goes home and has a place of piano, Wagner on the piano, he gets a piano, and then he has to go out and meet some more of them. So it's just a continuous circle of meeting people and asking people what they want and how, we, how are they going to possibly going to do it. Um, and there's a sort of central problem here that he has to work with, uh, this is his view of it, has to work with an Indian economist sent in by the World Bank who doesn't believe in national income accounting. He thinks you just have projects and you just fund them. And Stolper is very, very um, against that. It's not just these circles, his local newspaper wanted planned economy. Okay? I mean, this is big news. It's not just back in the bureaucrats. Um, he uses national income accounting. It's a technology developed with Keynesian economics in mind. It's developed in the 1930s um, alongside, not just because of Keynesian economics, but to create the notion of a macro economy, which is what Keynes is doing in the 1930s. National income accounting goes alongside that as a way of counting the macro economy. That's the whole economy at once. It's used very quickly. It's used in, to run war economies in World War II. It's used managing uh, post-war economies. You can't get martial aid from the US after the First Second World War unless you've got your national income accounting. You can't get aid if you're a developing economy from any of the international agencies unless you've got your national income accounts. It's a must-have. You can't go and get money from anywhere without these things. <clears throat> what, are the, what does this thing look like? Let me have a show you what it looks like. Okay, it's a new representational device, national income accounting. It measures the whole economy in three different ways. It gathers all the bits together of all the things that are going on in the economy as income, rents, profits, interest, salaries, wages, as output, the output of different industries, 
And the new categories on the right-hand side are the Keynesian categories of macro uh, consumption, macro investment, and total net national expenditure. So this is a new representation of the economy. Philistine, a famous economic historian, this was the first job she got involved in when she finished her degree, was figuring out this national income and how it's going to work in developing countries where you haven't got the data. So <clears throat> these accounts are a numerical account. You bring together all the bits you hope you've measured and you bound them together according to accounting principles. That is, the bottom lines have to add up. All of our incomes need to make this be the same as all of our outputs need to be the same as all of our expenditures. So if you haven't got all the bits, you try and triangulate to make sure you've somehow got all the bits counted. So the accounting principle behind this that Stolp is using is you can't just go and spend money. You've only got to spend money within the total that we've got in the macroeconomy. You've only got to think in terms of the macroeconomy. You've got to make it balanced this year. And if you have a project which is going to give you something next year, you've got to think about the consistency next year and for the next n years of your plan. So it's a very tight constraint. It's a representation which is a new form of representation, but it creates a kind of constraint on the system. Here's, here, here's how it works, for instance. Supposing, as supposed in Stolper's case, that you want to increase schooling. You want to increase uh, schooling for, for the, at the, undergrad, the first level, kindergarten level and primary school level. Now that means you have to build a whole lot of schools. That means we're going to have to do net investments going to go up, which is number 15 on the far right. We also, um, and that's also going to change nine, which is the goods we have to produce to build the schools. And it's also going to in increase four because we're going to have to pay um, salaries when, we, when we've got these, sorry, going back. We've got increasing five, 15, increases nine, which is the manufacturing and the other services, which is 12. If we then get the school started, we need teachers, so we're going to increase uh, four, which is the salaries, um, and the expenditure on current goods, which is 14. That means that our aggregates, net, net, the total income, the total output, and the total expenditure are all going to change because we've changed something in each of these columns. It's still got to add up. Right? So it's a constraint on how much investment you can make to actually do these things, given you've got to do all the other things that come with having more schools. So someone proposes we have a wonderful set of new schools, and Stolper works out it will mean the entire government spending for the next six years. So that project's not viable. Right? So that's the way that the accounting system works. Um, so it's a very important kind of tool. So if we go back to our kind of general point here, you know, we've got a new economic ideas, we've got a new form of accounting, which is a representation. We've got uh, the bureaucracy and the state capacity. We've got all that stuff in between going on. That's happening. And the cognitive shift is getting people to see the whole economy as one economy that you need to get to add up. And one of the things he's most pleased about at the end of his period is he's persuaded all the officials in the Western region to understand this so that when he goes to them and says, what do you want to do? They know they've got to think through the whole project rather than just say, we want to build lots of schools. 
right? So it's getting everybody else to buy in to get the cognitive shift that matters. <clears throat> it's very unfortunate that a year after the national, national plan started, the Biafran War happened, and so the whole plan disappeared. Okay, <clears throat> I'm not going to have time to talk about um, Millennium Development Goals, so let me move on to the final bit that I think we need in this puzzle, um, which is we need actions, right? Uh, to get performance, you need not only this uh, new representations, you need these process of alignments, you need to use these artifacts, these materials in the world. And that usage requires cognitive shifts, as I've just pointed out, and that requires new forms of behavior, which I've just tried to point to um, in the case of um, uh, the um, Stolper and the Western region bureaucrats. I want to try and get this over with a simple idea, simple representation. Okay, you are probably all familiar with the London tube map, unless you just walked in off the street having just got here off the plane, <laughs> right? Uh, we make our way round London, those of us who live here often take the bus instead, but we use the tubes, <laughs> the tube map, we need the tube map, we rely on the tube map, right? It's part of, if you come as a tourist, you have to get to know the tube map. Right? And that's how, it's a, it's a representation, it requires us, when we first get it, to make a cognitive commitment to understanding this tube map, and then we understand it when we get our norms of behavior, how we get to work, or how we get to school, what our usual journey is. Right? So we adjust to that map, and the point is, this map is not very accurate. Right? It's good enough to work, it's good enough to, to make us understand the map, it's good enough just to change our behavior to work with it, but if you can see, here's LSE, which looks there on that map as if our closest tube might be Mansion House, which is not at all close. In fact, we're probably closest to Hoban. But you see what I mean? It's not very accurate, uh, but it's, it's doing its work, and we, but we've done the work too. We've adapted to it. We've adapted our behavior so that we know how to use it, and we know that actually we're not going to ever walk. If we work in LSE, we're probably not going to work, walk to Mansion House if we want to, that line, going to walk to Temple, which is much closer. Do you, see, do you see what I'm getting at, right? It's cognitive, there's a representation. We need work to do to kind of cognize it. Once we've got it, we adapt our behavior to it. So, what would you do if you got this one, right? Which is actually a much more accurate map of where the tube lines are in relation to where we are. So, can't seem to get it to work. There we go. There it is. Look, and we're probably just about right. Hoban, Covent Garden, Temple. We're not doing too badly, <laughs> right? This would be a more accurate map. And supposing the London Transport said, "Okay, we're going to change it," right? <laughs> Okay, don't, <laughs> you see what I mean? We would get to use to work, we would get to work, we would start using it, we would adapt ourselves to the map, the map's adapted to the realities, it's a better map, a market map, we would adapt to it. Okay, that's the final piece in this kind of puzzle I want us to understand. <clears throat> it's about the habits and norms of behavior that co-fit 
us to the activities of the world around us to make accounts performative, right? It's not just because an economist told us this, it's because we created the wherewithal for us to know how to use these representations and these numbers, and we have adapted, we've got a cognitive shift, but we've also adapted to them. And the interesting work in sociology of accounting by uh, um, uh, these accounting colleagues of ours um, is really about the, the book by Mike Power called The Audit Society, which points out that actually when you think about all these rules you get, about you know, which tube station you should get off, right, you adapt your behavior to that, but actually most rules aren't like that. Most times we're told, um, well, the classic one in Britain is the National Health Service, if you go to a hospital, they're supposed to be seen within four hours. Well, actually, we know that doesn't happen, but what the, the, the people in the system do is adapt their bit of rule so that they don't even count the four hours until a certain point is up. If you're an academic, we are beset with TEFs and REFs and all sorts of ways of measuring us, but they're not very, they're, they look like they're incredibly exact, but actually they're not, and you have to adapt what you're doing so that you, so it'll fit into those categories. So that's the sense in which our norms are also adapting us to that as well as that to us. So this is the way, this is the last bit of the puzzle about the perception and cognition enabling us to co-fit our behavior to the world. Um, and the more that happens, the more our world becomes like the account depicted in these representations and by the economists. So our world changes because we have these new representations, we adapt to it. I'm sort of imagining myself thinking about a cubist world and walking around corners in a different way. But it's something about uh, our adaptability to the system we are in. So when I first saved my puzzle and answer, I gave you the standard view and I said, look, the problem is how do we change these ideas into actions on the ground? How do we change the world? And I gave an answer there which was about development of diagrams, maps, models, measuring systems. And the important point I want to stress here is the prompting of the cognitive change and the information that we get in these representations on which not just the state can act, but on which we all act and create norms of behavior. It's not alchemy. No. Thank you <laughs> to... who's unfortunately not here, who I've worked with on the booth property maps for several years. So thank you to Indy as well. But that's the nice part of people. Thank you, Mary. Thank you. Um, Sorry. Please come, come up and join me here and we'll, we'll have uh, some time for questions. We'll let Mary make her way up onto the stage. Um, just to say that um, obviously if you are online and wish to pose a question, please do put it into the system and it will be fed to me on my trusty iPad here. Um, trusty, I don't know why, I said stretching in the introduction. Yeah, I, I stretched, stretched, I think we all are. Um, can I just kind of open a little bit before I invite questions from the floor? Um, you're talking here kind of how, about how economists create ways of thinking that, uh, in your metaphor, serve as machines, right? They change what we do, they change how we behave. And I was kind of reminded of, we had a lecture last year by 
Ed Glazer, an American economist, and one of his messages was about how the motor car creates the modern city by shifting and by allowing the suburbs to exist. And in some ways, there's a perhaps a parallel here with what you're saying. But the interesting thing is, or one of the many interesting things, is that obviously economists are doing this. So if economists are having these effects by the tools they're making, by the machines that they are creating, is there a message from this about how economists should be either being taught or being approaching, approaching their work that you think you'd want to step out and take from this? Well, that's why I think we should all be economic historians, right? <laughs> um, no, I think, I think the point is that, that a lot of, some, some things come from that. They, they, the, the, the economics which you, you, know, you might think of, Keynes, right, He's, has all these great ideas. But actually the important bit of technology is the national income accounting. And so, yes, there's some new ideas that, that create that third column. And it's not just that they create the third column, but it creates the reasoning that you use when you're arguing across the national income accounts. So um, without the national income accounts, Keynesian economics would have been different. But without Keynes, the national income accounts would have been different. So it's not that they're the same people with the ideas who are necessarily creating the technologies and representations. And I, uh, so if we can call them all economists or social sciences, um, then I, I think that's, that, that would work. And I think a lot of, you know, it, like all fields, there's lots of division of labor between people going on. But you, but you need this kind of packaging up. And you, you need the people to make the representations that are sufficiently accurate or sufficiently true. I mean, as in our tube maps, it's good enough for us to get around London, even though it's not fully the one, and that's the kind of key move, I think. Okay, so the kind of a quality measure that has to be successfully yes. implemented. Yeah. Right, I'm going to open, open the field for questions, so please, uh, we've got microphones on the side. Let me start here with the gentleman in the, in the centre of the second row, which is the most challenging place to get a microphone to. Uh, well, not actually. Please pop your hands up and I will start to create a little list. Yeah. Just, just extending that question, yeah. I think uh, with the new uh, technology, art is changing. I mean, you start, this was a fantastic session, by the way. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, you mentioned art and science both impact how, um, uh, how things are perceived and eco economies can impact yeah. things that way. And both of them are being impacted by technology, right? So, uh, like my son is planning to do economy, trying to be an economist. So, how what do you see economists should be doing in the context of the technology, basically? The new technology, AI, and I didn't want to use AI as a word, but uh, the art, AI is changing art, AI is changing um, uh, your science as well, sort of, in a way. Yeah, I don't have an answer to this. I mean, I'm still waiting to figure out what, I mean, I've got, I'm getting a handle on AI and, and text, but I've not got much of a handle on AI and statistics for example. I mean, big data, yes, but um, maybe I'll come back to this because I have got a thought, but it's kind of lurking still. Yeah. Sorry, I Sorry, don't I, have an immediate response. No, no, it's, it's a good question. Let me start there and then go there afterwards, if that's okay. And, uh... Okay, brilliant. Uh, thanks, Mary, as usual, so really enjoyed the talk. Um, my question actually relates to, uh, you know, sort of the 
obverse of your talk, which is your question is how economies shape the world. Um, what we find in many countries around the world is that it's actually non-economists, in a sense, who are uh, who may well be trained in economics, but they're really not applying economic ideas and still shaping the world. Um, and you know, I mean, by that I mean countries like China and Korea, uh, you know, heterodox economists in Latin America, um, where they have actually almost bucked, um, you know, uh, economic theory and sort of just gone by practice. Uh, and whatever came to them, or not necessarily what came to their minds, but what they thought was the right thing to do. Maybe like the Nigerian plan, I, I'm not sure what, what he ended up doing. But, um, you know, a bit like figuring out what is necessary, ignoring what economic theory says, and then doing what's right. And, and, and the amazing thing is it has worked. Uh, and many of these economies have really done, prospered, done well. Uh, and they've gone pretty much against the grain of what uh, economists of their time, and for that matter, even after their time, have, have said should have been done. So even retrospectively, people are still figuring out why Korea you know, became what it did, or China became what it did. Uh, so you know, so I, I don't know if that's relevant to your talk, but my question is really uh, economics, uh, economists shaping the world, but also non-economists shaping the world, and probably doing it successfully. So I don't know if you have a com comment on that. Yeah. Actually, it was about economic ideas, not economists. Which oh. I think, but I think it's, it's, a, it's an important point, actually, because, of course, a lot of economics is not out to change the world. I mean, it's, it's very much the camera space. It's actually trying to figure out how the world works. And that doesn't necessarily give you the wherewithal to change it. And of course, lots of things change in the world, not because there's any economic ideas that are pushing it. But I think when you think of the set of all the people involved here, right, the idea that there's probably no economic stuff at all in this set of, this big set of action spaces, I think is not quite so obvious and I think it would be okay it doesn't come from a simple economic idea or a simple economic theory and I don't the reason I'm keeping to ideas is because I'm not sure that the, um, the I think the path between the theories and the ideas is a little bit opaque and how the theories translate into policy may be actually more difficult than having these sort of broader ideas about what how the economy you know how do you get a growth economy right I mean Surely there's lots of theories around, and they're getting translated into various ways in recipes for policy. So there's also actually quite a big gap there, I think, um, that, um, if one, that, you, that you know these things are related, you can see the relationships between the people, you can see where they're going, who they're talking to. But actually to do an analysis of that link, I think, is a bit, would be something which would be worth doing. Thank you. Let's, I think we're going there, and then we're going there. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Hiya. Um, what's the economic idea that had the greatest potential to change the world but didn't deliver? And what can we learn about the process you've described 
from that. And if the answer to that question is nothing at all, economic ideas always change the world and they're always fantastic, perhaps what's the, what's the economic idea that got most, most distorted on its way from economists to the real world and what can we maybe learn about the process from that? It sounds like you have lots of answers in there. <laughs> um, I, I may have one answer, but I feel very underqualified to say yeah, anything in this room. What your answer was? Um, well, I, I, well, firstly, in terms of what got, what got... Uh, unfortunately for me, I'm always cocky. Um, but um, the one that got... I think one thing that kind of didn't re-deliver was we, when we lost the sort of debate over the conceptualization of value um, and we sort of settled on an answer and that dictated a lot of the economics that happened after the Second World War, um, which is a bit up in the abstract. In terms of the one that got distorted, I think the economic concept that I encounter in my day-to-day -day work as an economist that is most misunderstood is the idea of the externality and the idea of what a proper carbon price is. Um, and I think that's actually been quite damaging that we got... Yeah, I think I think we're in the middle of, of that one. I mean, just having listened to Nick Stern uh, in Bang about various discount rates, I think I mean I think there's a very er an area of lots of interesting um, arguments, and uh, I think it's often the case that bits of economics get kind of hijacked, um, wrongly directed, and then there's a sort of feedback and you know crunch back and a return. And so I think it, it, the win. That, you know, historians will have a field day with that if they live long, if, if we live long enough to, <laughs> to do it. But I'm uh, just in some question about value. What, what was your point about value, theory of value? Um, so I'm a historian who became an economist because he needed to be employed. Um, but um, <laughs> the like the most interesting kind of like history that I kind of ever came across was kind of like. The, like, the debate that was being had in like, the 1840s and 50s about what it meant to actually produce value, kind of like what you might call Marx's early writings, basically, where he got very upset about how value was identified in sort of factories in Frankfurt, basically. Um, and I feel like there was actually a really interesting, rich debate there that never really translated into the real world as kind of a set of economic ideas. Um, and then we sort of hit upon, I mean, linked to the national income accounting idea, we sort of hit on an idea um, because of how kind of it was approached as part of the Second World War, and that kind of became the answer. We never really reopened the debate. I mean, you've got stuff like Richard Layard now talking about happiness, but I don't yeah, think we've quite got there. There's clearly, I mean, it's not the best measure, right? I mean, sorry, let me rephrase that. No measure is going to measure everything. We've changed our view about what it is we should be trying to measure. Um, but a nice little story that, that kind of gives you the sense that actually there's a reaction. Um, so the Dutch. Uh, Central plan the Dutch Central Planning Unit, as it's, as it's not only just been changed its name, but every every year there's a budget. Uh, before the budget, all the political parties give their plans uh, to this agency, and the agency uses the national income accounting to chunk out what the effect of that will be on various different groups in the economy. And the Green Party refused to give their proposals up because they said there was no green accounting in their national income accounting. So the Dutch Central Planning Agency promptly put green accounting in. So you know there are ways in which one, you know, that, that there's a reaction to 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 develop, and there are lots of other aspects going on now to try and change national income accounting to cope with digital economy. There's lots of stuff going on, including happiness. So. That's kind of an optimistic answer, isn't it, that we will, things will get better? Well, uh, no, no I, what I'm saying is things change. Yeah, but under pressure, for, under pressure from mm -hmm. people. Um, let, let's go down here, because unfortunately I missed a, a, a little cluster of questions there.
Um, yes, I want to ask a question. I don't know. It's kind of you talked about the historical and sociology uh, perspective, like, and you're connecting it with um, economics. I was wondering, what does international law or domestic laws play into this? Um, like, you were going to talk about the SDGs, but I was just talking, like, yeah, if you have any specific international um, perspective on this. I don't think I've quite got the question. Um, what role does international like law can can international help? Law? Yes, international law. Oh, play um, into. Well, I think uh, in the SDGs it comes in in some space or other, and I think uh, the question of law and economics is a very interesting one. And if I was giving an example from America here, I would actually be talking about the law and economics movement because the closeness of yeah. American free marketeers like to think that the free market is best, but also that they have a free market, which they don't, because there's very strong legal framings in the way the economy works and what you're allowed to do, in, which are in different ways, I mean, in ways which are rather different here and in the European context. So I think if I was giving an account of America, I'd want to have law right up there as one of the key aspects of what's, what creates the change. I'm not sure that answers your question, but it's a space for it anyway. Are there any specific international like, um, treaties or...? Um... Yes, they're, they're very much part of it. I mean, mm -hmm. the, but that's always been true. I mean, the mercantilist, uh, you know, the law of the sea, Hugo Grotius is part of the uh, mercantilist period, responses to economic ideas about where wealth comes, where trade comes from, where wealth comes from, and what law of the sea you need to have to support that. So, in that sense, laws freeze economic ideas to yes, some extent. Yes, Is yes, that, I think that, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, I think there's a lady just in front there. Yeah. First of all, thank you so much. This is very interesting. Uh, my question would be in regards to kind of the final remarks you've um, made over your talk. So you said something um, along the lines, our norms adapting us to those norms and uh, the adaptability of humans being something very important. I was wondering if you could expand on that and maybe link it to the central idea of how economic ideas are shaping the world. Maybe for me to, to have that more clarified in my head. Thank you. So how we adapt? Uh, yes, but you said something along the lines of how our norms are yeah. adapting us to those yes. norms. Well, we, yes. So, yes. Yeah, so, so if you go to a market in a street market in London, there's kind of standard rules of how how you you know that you know that that there's a price which you expect to pay, and the marketeer might play around with the price uh, in his verbal discussions, but basically he's got in mind a fixed price. I mean, he's got an actual price. Um, but if you were to go to markets in other parts of the world, you would have very different norms. And if you then visit those, you adapt your norms to, to those particular local markets. But there would be places, there would be times when there might be market rules which change in any market, which would mean that the market uh, is, which might mean that the market's having to adapt to the consumer side as well as the consumer adapting to the, to the seller side. So I think markets are quite a good place to think about this norms of behavior. Of course, they're very culturally specific. Um, but, but, but if you, wherever you are in this market, I mean, wh whichever market you're in, 
there are rules, right? It may not be evident to the person who's coming from outside, but there are rules there. Um, you know, there are rules about bidding in lots of markets. There are rules if you're in a, a, a flower market in the Netherlands, you know, what kind of auction you have, what kind of rules you have about how the steps of bidding. So they're very rule-bound places in lots of ways, but those rules are uh, at least as much norms as they are actual rules. Right? They're not really, they're not laid down. You can't come to this market unless you use this. They are norms of behavior that everyone plays by. And they, they grow up gradually in most places. I mean, would another example be how our expectations about inflation now have become shaped very much by the way that inflation is being represented to us and recorded and tracked? We think about price levels now yes. in a very particular way, right? No, I, I'm I struck by this. I was immediately thinking of hyperinflation. Yeah, so, okay. Yeah. So hyperinflation, for instance, you, 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 um, you stop looking at the price rises in a hyperinflation and you look at the exchange rate because you can't, you can't gather the information to actually know what the retail price index says. So the quickest way to do it is to figure out what, is to go and find out what the dollar exchange rate is because that's, that's reflecting it. So that's another little kind of norm um, of, I was sorry, hijacking the, no, 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 the no, normal no, inflation yeah. to the big inflation, but that's another place where a norm happens quite quickly. Great. I've got a couple of questions in the room, which I'm going to come to in a second. One at the back first, and then one in the front. But I've got a question from um, online from Alka Rahman, so I want to bring some of the people who are here virtually in. Um, and Alka asks, um, she thanks you for an excellent yeah. session, but she um, asks whether representations are objective or subjective. Um, and particularly what your thoughts are on the role of the actors who create representations and the scientification, in quotation marks, it's not a word I've ever heard of either, of representations. Sorry, objective, subjective, what's the next bit? The thought, your thoughts on the role of the actors who create representations yeah. Yeah. and the scientification. Um, well, I think, uh, I think the objectification, subjectification isn't quite the way I think about it. Right? So, I mean, <laughs> They're never going to be exactly, right? It's this old question, if, if, if you had an exact map, it would be as big as the country. So they're always going to miss some stuff out. They're always going to focus on some things, not others. Some maps are going to give you mountains and some maps are going to give you railway stations. So they're going to choose, they're making choices all the time about what you do. So it's not so much subjectification and objectification to me as the choices of what you decide to represent, right? What are we representing these booth poverty maps, right? It's not a subjective, objective sort of view. It's, okay, I've, I've created these categories, that, and the categories have somehow fallen out of a huge, big study. So I think I would find that terminology... Um, I, don't, I don't think I know what to do with it, actually. Okay. Um, scientification. There was something in the middle between the scientists. Uh, the role of the actors. Oh, so. the role of the actors. Uh, beavering away. All those people running around London, going into all these households. You have to be pretty committed, don't you, to do that, I think. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a kind of obsession <laughs> if you do that sort of stuff. Um, and, you know, the scientification, I, are they more scientific? I mean, we, we can get into kind of science fictions and, you know, but I... I that there's community, there's community system here uh, in all of these science spaces, which is uh, saying, okay, but what about? 
what's this doing, what's that? So there's a community plausibility test on all these things, right, that is always coming in. So someone picks up a new way of measuring X uh, in economic history, and all the rest of us in the department will say, yeah, but hold on, <laughs> what about this and what about that? Doesn't seem plausible. So I think this is a community issue about, her, about science and uh, related kind of focuses of how we measure things, how we represent things, um, what colours we use. The kind of community barriers. Yes, the community, community is part of that, those decisions, I think, that's, that, that make, it sound, make it believable to the scientists involved. I think we're time for two just final questions. Let me start right at the back of our corner and then we'll come back and we'll finish here. What I found really interesting is to discover how this whole process of world making was affected by the kind of examples you gave, like for example, double entry bookkeeping, national accounting systems, etc. One thing I wondered is if there is some kind of implication from this in a way um, for the process of world making itself. Are there, for example, things that would improve the process of world making? Are there things that would make it more difficult in a way? So would there be any kind of practical implications for the future in, in, in what, what would work in terms of world making and what not? And I also wonder whether there's any way to decide in terms of um, a value judgment if some types of world making are preferable above others. I don't know if there's any, any way that would come in, in, some, in some way. But it's a bit about are there any implications for the future of world making in any ways in which we can affect the process or make it work better or, or you know, um, um, take out some things that make it more difficult in a way. Oh, thank you. Let me come back to the AI uh, thing because I think this is kind of related, right? Um, so, you know, we're almost certainly going to have new ways of world making through AI. And because of the nature of the materials they use, they're going to be different, right? So I don't know there's a value judgment here, right? But we wouldn't want to constrict them to be like this if, in fact, what happens with the new technology is enables us to make a new kind of representation. So that's the first point, is um, that there aren't rules for making world making. And in fact, you don't want there to be, because if you want to change the way we view the world, you don't want to be constrained to only see it in the old way. Uh, you know, there must have been a, a kind of move from single entry to double entry bookkeeping, which opened up all sorts of things, right? So you, you want to have that possibility of world making anew, because that's in fact the basis of what this is all about. If we, don't see, if we don't see it new, we don't have that possibility of making the cognitive shift. So what we hope with AI is that we get new representations. Um, and they should be because they're different materials. I think the other thing to say about this is actually the different representational media can be really important. Right? I mean, there's an obvious example in economics, which is if you want to do, if you want to find out an equilibrium price in a supply and demand system, you, you really want to have some equations doing the work for you. If you want to actually think about how the world changes in a disequilibrium world, how the world adjusts, you want to be working with some kind of graphics which allow you to think about that. So going right back to one of those earliest, you know, early 20th century, late 19th century way of putting that very basic piece of economics together, 
the, the, the diagram is, is doing very different work than the set of equations. And you want them to be doing, I mean, you don't want to make them one because they can't answer each other's questions very easily. So that's another reason to have, you know, as in the national income accounts, several different ways of doing something. And, and an openness to new. Yeah, an openness to new, yeah. Um, I think our final question here. Well, a very different A and B. The A is about how economic ideas travel in the age of social media, so not quite AI. But um, if we had, for example, um, in recent UK history, the idea that migration had caused a negative effect on the economy, which led to a policy change um, in Brexit, for example, and, and what we get in its wake. Um, you know, how, what do we do about post, being in an age of post-facts or alternate facts? And the second thing is, um, without, uh, you know, we're out of time, but could you give us, I'm so disappointed that we didn't get onto the SDG example. Can you just give us like the punchline of a few, <laughs> a sentence or two of what you, what you wanted to say about oh, okay. it? Let me, let me deal with that last one. Uh, look, the SDGs, the MDG, the Millennium Development Goals and then the Sustainable Development Goals, looked like they were a brilliant new start, right? Because they had these wonderful pictures with all these different colours. And here's what we're going to concentrate on for the Millennium uh, Goals and then the de de Sustainable Development Goals. Um, I think the jury's out, but I think they're not going to do anything for us, in a way, because they are not very good measurements of the things we're trying to measure to change. Right? The, the indicator measurements, which means that they indicate something about it, they can't, for instance, if I say, I want a measurement of the, I want to get, the, you know, I want all the poor to be resilient, uh, you know, well, how am I going to measure resilience of the poor? Uh, until I have a sense about what that is, how can I actually get it to work? And the second thing about it is there's no relationships between these things. They're all individual bits. So if it is a kind of machine, it's not going to be a machine that actually has that kind of quality that the NIA or the Booth Poverty Maps have. Now, there is a way they can work, and that is not through the bureaucracy and the state capacity. It's because lots of individual people like you are moved to, motivated to go after their local government to sort out child poverty, for example, or modern slavery. So it's a bottom-up possibility, but I don't think there's any resources really in it that would make the kind of representation uh, reasoning tool that I've talked about with the other two. So that would be, that's my take on the SDGs. Do you want to try A, or I think we're... No. <laughs> I think I think given that we're past eight o'clock, that's that is your prerogative. Um, so it just rests to us all, I think, to thank you for a very, very stimulating and enjoyable lecture. So Mary, thank you. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.